this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. And my guests today are Dr Rebecca Campbell. She's the Director of Studies for the Global Masters in Management at the uh, London School of Economics. And her husband, Anthony McGowan. He's an English author of books for children, teenagers and adults, including an Observer Book of the Year, The Art of Failing. And together with their dog, Monty, who plays a key part in their new book, they have come up with How to Teach Economics to Your Dog, a quirky introduction. Uh, welcome both to Rebecca and Anthony. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure, Pleasure. so far. <laughs> <laughs> so far, yeah. Give it some time. So listen, I think we should give the, the audience some background in that we have known each other for a long time because we have children of similar ages and they all went to the same school in Hampstead and so we have spent years slogging up and down that hill with <laughs> a small <beautiful> children. Hill. <laughs> <laughs> with small children and dogs and so on. And so there's quite a lot of history here and all of that's kind of rooted in the book because this is the most wonderful, simple explanation of economics, but it's told over 17 walks, all in the Hampstead area, and talking to your lovely dog, Monty. So I think, first of all, we need to get a sense of who Monty is. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Shall I do that bit? You do Um, that bit, yes. Well, it's a kind of classic story. Our our daughter demanded a dog when she was younger, and uh, we resisted for a a while, eventually collapsed, and we, uh, we bought Monty as a little white, fluffy Maltese not Maltese Terrier, but Maltese Dog. And, of course, Rosie, our daughter, promised that she would walk him and feed him and pick up the dog poo. And what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) That was our job. Um, So, yeah, it's been a part of our life now for 11 years, I think. And, uh, as you know, as a dog owner, they work their way into your soul. And uh, now he's a a key part of the family. Absolutely. I love in the introduction you describe what he looks like. And, of course, that (laughs) depends on how recently he's had a (laughs) blow-dry. Yeah, like a sneeze come to life. (laughs) Generally very bedraggled. Uh, And we also, Anthony, you've you've written so many great books, both for kids and and for adults. Uh, And you also have this wonderful kind of Facebook persona uh, where you detail your walks with Monty around the West Hampstead area, which is where we all live, and have all sorts of things like your uh, doppelganger dwarf. (laughs) Heimlich, yes. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Tony who's on Facebook. Yeah, well, I, I suppose I've been using Facebook for about 10 years as a as a writer's notebook, testing out ideas, little, little comic scenes and, and bits of dialogue. That eventually became my book, The Art of Failing. And so I, I suppose I invented a comic persona, a version of me for, for my Facebook post, which is in some way related to the real me. But there's also a, a prominent role for Mrs. McGee in, the, in, those, in those posts, a kind of terrifying, fearsome... Ogre-like, monstrous presence in our in our life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, this is radio, obviously, so people can't see the raised eyebrows on my face, and also the very gorgeous Mrs. McGee. Uh, utterly, oh. utterly, utterly beautiful. Um, so yes, yeah, so it was a kind of comic persona I, I invented, but also just testing out literary and ideas. Yeah. And also, you were the... just pretending. You just like to waste time on Facebook. <laughs> all all this that. stuff about testing out ideas and interacting. Yeah, that's all nonsense. He just likes oh, Facebook. Yeah, and le- laboratory of the mind, yeah. not so much. <laughs> well, it's easier than working. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, on the subject of working, though, you're incredibly prolific. I mean, you've written so many books, but alongside of that, you also go into schools, and it seems to me like a pretty thankless task. <laughs> Well, you say a lot. I, mean, I tried to count up the other day how many books I've written. It's somewhere between 49 and 53. Oh. It gets a bit blurry after a while. It's like trying to remember how many girlfriends you've had. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but a lot of those are quite small books for kids. And you've got to be 
prolific as a children's author because if you're not, then you lose your audience. They grow up and they disappear. And also for most children's authors, going into schools is a big part of the job, you know, connecting with your audience and getting paid for it quite often. But, you know, I can't pretend it's a real job. You know, I spend most of my time loafing around while Rebecca does all the real work. You see, yeah. I, I don't uh, believe well, I, that. Yeah, and also I'd say <laughs> having just come out of remembering writing this book, How to Teach Economics to Your Dog, it's a real job. Yeah. I don't think I'd quite appreciated quite how hard it is to sit down, you know, in front of a blank screen oh, and write. This is a, a, yeah. a unique moment it here. This has never been acknowledged moment. in 25 it's, years it of marriage. Gave me, you know, <laughs> write, writing that book gave, gave me, I thought, wow, OK, it's not just loafing around in your pyjamas, you know, going on Facebook every 20 minutes. It's real work. It's real work. Georgina, work. already I'm glad I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all worthwhile. Let's have a look at the McGowan-Campbell household. Mm. <laughs> Perhaps we could start with your DIY skills. <laughs> Which skills are those? <laughs> well, I gather Rebecca doesn't think they exist no. particularly, although I understand you're quite handy with a fuse box. <laughs> yeah, I occasionally ha- I have a go, yes, but um, it's, it's not my, my natural gift. <laughs> but I suppose I feel it's one of my manly duties to try and fix things when they do go wrong. Are you talking about the fuse box? Yes, when they, a key part of the book is when our toaster blows up. And my sole attempt to fix it, well, first of all, I try putting the fuse on again and then um, dismantle the toaster and fail to remantle it, which is kind of where we come in. <laughs> There's a very famous example from economics based on the toaster, which uh, maybe Becky can explain. Oh, it's a lovely story. This this guy, he's not, he's not an economist. He, well, he's an artist, basically. He decided to have a go building a toaster from scratch. And he goes on a journey and he tries to make all the, you know, he tries to make the plastic and mine the metals you, you need. So you can buy a toaster for about a tenner now. I think when he when he did his project, you buy a toaster for four ninety nine. But he, you know, he went through all the process of trying to build from scratch a toaster himself. And he said, in a sense, he cheated because he had YouTube so he could look at how to do many parts of it. And I think he it took him about two years it cost, not including his time, about two thousand pounds, and I, you know I think it, he managed to turn it on for a second before before <laughs> it blew. So I think you know if you can call it a toaster, I don't know. It looks like some. If you see, it's a, it's an amazing story. If you see it, it looks like a bit of like a, a sort of melted mutant sea creature. This thing. And I don't think he meant it as an economic metaphor, but it's actually a, is a very good economic metaphor. Is that you know if you divide labour and specialise, you can produce a toaster for. Four ninety nine. If one person tries to make it by themselves from scratch, it's going to take them two years and cost two thousand pounds. Mm. So um, it became a metaphor for the market system that if we all do our separate little bits, you increase productivity and wealth. So mm. that's why we used it as a little kind of introductory story. And there's a similar thing about pins, isn't there? Yeah, that's the classic Adam Smith kind of insight in the Wealth of Nations. You know, Adam Smith was trying to understand what made countries rich, basically. At the time, the UK was two or three times richer than the poorest countries. And he was trying to understand where this difference came from. And he argued it's the division of labour, that basically if you divide up labour, you can do things faster and more efficiently. And the, his example was of the pin factory, that if, if one person makes a pin from beginning to end, they might make 10 pins a day. If you divide that all up, you can produce 40,000 pins a day. So mm. that's the kind of the classic example. And the toaster project's just a more yeah, absolutely. amusing extension. Let's talk about then the way that this book is set up and the way that it was yes. written too, because, yeah. of course, Monty is key to it. But you, you are essentially channelling Monty, Tony. Yeah, well, um, basically, Becky wrote her basic text 
and that's 80% of what the final book is. Uh, she then passed it to me to, well, I always use the term vajazzle, just to try. And, 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 <laughs> I so, hate that term. <laughs> so what I did then was to put all the Monty bits in. So all the basic economic facts were all in there. And I, I suppose I turned it into the walks. So that was my kind of gilding the lily over the top of it. And, yeah, so the basic structure is it's 17 walks, most of which conducted by Becky, in which she talks to Monty about different areas of economics. So I suppose I added the sort of dialogue elements and some little silly descriptions, but basically the, the bones of it are Becky. I added the, the, the sinew and the, and the muscle and the, the flab. You I added suppose. the fluff. And the fluff. <laughs> the furry, the, 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 Monty, the Monty white yeah. fluff. But so, yes, it, it's 17 walks in which these uh, crucial fundamental areas of uh, economics are discussed. And uh, it's probably worth saying as well, this is kind of a sequel to an earlier book called How to Teach Philosophy to Your Dog. Um, which was when I began this idea of of explaining philosophy through dialogues with with Monty uh, as a kind of perfect blank sheet to, to respond to. So in terms of the content, Rebecca, why was there a need for it? Because there definitely was, I think. But I mean, well, I, I'm delighted you say that. When I when I first sat down to do it, I did think, is there a need for it? Because there's a lot of introductory books for for economics you know Tim Harford writes amazing ones and I did feel this kind of like you know what possible value and then when I went back and I looked at all the Tim Harford ones which are absolutely fantastic you know the world moves on so you know there are some amazing books but the world changes and I was realizing as I was writing it that apart from the fact that you want to have more modern examples for things to make it feel more relevant to people you know there are also things that I talk about in the book that just simply didn't really kind of figure 10, 15 years ago. Quantitative easing was not going to be anyone in anyone's book 10 years ago. Bitcoin didn't really exist. So I think, you, you know, there is a need to have new books on this because simply the world changes. I mean, even when we wrote this, there's a bit about inflation and a bit about money. And I'm mm. very, very proud to say there's a little line in there which I kind of say, look, I think we're heading into a period of high inflation. But, you know, did I have any clue what we were heading into <laughs> now? No. So I mm. hope that's what it adds is a little bit more up to date. Mm. Uh, let's bring it right up to date, because, of course, one of the reasons that everybody is so interested in economics right now, particularly in Britain, but indeed across the world, because, of course, we're in the grip of a crisis. But it's particularly bad in the UK where the economy's just imploded. Becky, if you were explaining to Monty what's just happened here, what has happened? Oh, <laughs> So it is extraordinary, isn't it? I think Liz Truss has managed something that I don't think you ever see very often, which is she's managed to get kind of almost unanimous agreement in that everyone agrees that that, well, I was going to say budget, it was that fiscal event was complete disaster. It's just extraordinary. So we're in a period where we're going into high inflation. And to be fair to the current Conservative government, it's not an easy situation to be in. It's not, you know, whatever they did, it wasn't going to look pretty. But I think what went so badly wrong is the fiscal event, i.e., you know, the budget in all but name, was well, I think economists would say it was very incoherent because on one hand you've got the Bank of England who's trying to pull back on inflation, so they're raising interest rates. Essentially what they're trying to do is to trying to make us spend less because they want to kind of 
pull back on inflation. Then you've got the Liz Trust budget or Quasi Quateng's budget saying, OK, we're going to announce tax cuts. So that's working in the opposite direction. So you've got an incoherence there. But I think what really freaked out the markets, the, the currency markets and the debt markets, was this was completely unfunded and there was no attempt at presenting any kind of costings for any of their announcements. And then that just sort of frightens the markets. And so that had a huge impact on the currency market. So you get the pound losing value against the dollar. We import a lot of things. So if the pound gets weak, then everything we are importing gets more expensive. That in turn increases further fuels inflation. So in turn, that means that the Bank of England is going to have to increase interest rates even more, which is going to make our mortgages more expensive. There is no doubt that this is happening around the world, not just the UK, but it's quite clear that budget made a bad situation worse. Mm. And I mean, what you do in the book also is break down terms like oh, what yeah. inflation means. <laughs> yes, and I mean, most of our listeners will know this yeah. off the back of their head, but you look at that and also I, I found that the bit about quantitative easing really, really oh, interesting because, yeah. of course, it's called different things. For a reason. <laughs> for a reason. Tell us why. If you use lots of different terms, it, it kind of it hides the reality where essentially it's printing money and, and no government wants to say it's printing money so they use all these different terms so, you know, I can't remember now what, what they were but you know things like quantitative easing and I think it obscures what's really going on. Wealth is not money, wealth is what we can produce and essentially it's a if you print too much money, then you've got more money chasing the same amount of goods. That's going to lead to inflation. I mean, that's not the only reason we're seeing inflation now. It's also because of the energy crisis. But that is certainly one of the things that's kind of caused all these problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, you also make the point, and this is something we've seen again in stark reality, how there is a difference and very much a, a divide between the Bank of England and the government. Yeah, as there should be. Yeah. Tell us how that works and how they play off each other, or perhaps they shouldn't at all. Well, is it worth defining the difference between fiscal policy oh. and <laughs> and what's the other kind of monetary, 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 monetary policy? policy. <laughs> that might be, that's quite an interesting little division, which people like me didn't really understand at all until okay. I read your chapter. Okay. So fiscal policy is everything to do with, with taxing and spending. And monetary policy is everything to do with the money supply and interest rates, basically. So the Bank of England's job is to, its remit is to keep inflation under control. And really, a lot of countries made their central banks independent because it's very hard for governments that are elected every five, seven years, depending on the country. It's very hard for governments to essentially raise interest rates because it's in the short term can be politically unpopular. So by separating out those powers, you have you're essentially kind of, you know, the grown ups are in charge of the Bank of England and they're they're pulling back on on elected governments need to always pump the economy full of money and keep it growing. Mm. So, I mean, this essentially, Kwarteng's budget or Truss's budget has had an absolutely disastrous effect, yeah. although we're now seeing some kind of recovery. But I wonder why they did this. I mean, clearly it's been in the, in the making for a long time. Is this just a, an economic experiment in terms of the top rate of tax that really scared everybody? I mean, what was the thinking behind this? I mean, I... Well, it's hard right ideology. You know, both Truss and Kwarteng are hard right ideologues and that they want to shrink the state 
Oh, well, I think and, if you, so, I think if you're really cynical, you'd say that that, that actually they they're just they're, they're lobbing a hand grenade into the economy, and they know that w- what this will do essentially is, is give them a means to shrink the state. You know, Tony and I are different politically. I'm, you know, Tony's very left wing. I'm kind of centre right. You know, I'm you know much more happy with kind of markets. You know, I have voted Conservative in the past, but even I, I you know, I struggle to find any kind of justification for this. It mm. seems extraordinary. So, I mean, at the heart, and possibly at the heart of the marital fissure, <laughs> fissure. <laughs> is, we is, have a healthy dialogue. I say is is about free markets. Yeah. So, can you just explain what a free market is, and and Tony, perhaps you could tell us why it's a bad thing. Okay. So to step back. We use the term free markets. There's no such thing as a free market. Markets only function when you have governments there who are setting standards, providing the rule of law, making sure that people enter into contracts, that these are enforceable. So I think the first caveat I say is there is no such thing as a free market. You know, the next part of your question is implicitly, why do I like markets? So I think markets can be an incredibly effective way of coordinating information and providing incentives for people to kind of innovate and do things. But that's not to say they always work. There are some contexts in which you will find markets work better and there will be some contexts in which you find markets work really bad. And almost the point of this book is to kind of lay out, okay, these are the kind of situations in which markets will work well and they will be of use to us. And these are the situations in which markets are likely to work badly, you know, like the energy market, or even you get problems of pollution, you know, those are situations in which markets don't work well. And really, the government's role is to kind of step back and think, okay, where can we use them? And where should we not use them? And how should we regulate them? You know, markets are not our master, they're our servant, we should sort of see where they work best and try and use them where they work best. So that would be my my defence of markets in the right place, regulated in the right way, with the right economic institutions, they can when they have brought us extraordinary wealth in the wrong place, if you're just kind of ideologically committed to markets, in any and every circumstances, then they have you no know, terrible consequences. Well, that was awfully moderately <laughs> and eloquently put. Like, I can't really disagree with that. It's really annoying. <laughs> um, well, just from my own angle, it might be worth just going back to the substance of the, that, that um, fiscal event. I think there's a broad agreement that when you're faced with a recession stroke depression, which we may well be on the, on the cusp of, governments have a, have a role in trying to reflate the economy. And there's two ways you can do that. Either you can give tax cuts to the rich, which is what they did, or you can invest in public works or, or perhaps even increase benefits at the bottom end. If you give tax cuts to the rich, all the evidence is that they'll spend some of that, which will help you. And um, save most or, of it. But they'll save big chunks of it because they can afford to. There's only so many yachts that you, that you can have. Whereas if you, if you have public works, that all goes into the economy. If you give tax breaks to the poor, then because they're poor, they'll tend to spend that all. So it's a much more efficient way of, of helping you raise yourself out of that, that recession situation. So maybe that's you know, my kind of political angle, that I'd rather it was that, that money that we'd have to borrow was invested rather than just given away to the rich in tax cuts. Mm. And I think this has some kind of crossover, as you were indicating at the beginning, with your book on philosophy, because a lot of philosophical thought examines just these areas. What, the notions of equality and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's the, that's the, um, the difference in nuance between us, that um, as a loony lefty, you know, I'm in love with the idea of equality. I think that the more equal a society, the, the happier a society. And there's lots of evidence from around the world that shows that. The more equal societies, and I hate to use the, the, the cliched um, example of Scandinavia, they're happier. Whereas perhaps the, the other side is, is that freedom is your key, 
your key good. And perhaps that's more where, where Becky's lies. That for you, the ideal is freedom. For me, the ideal is equality. For me, neither. It's kind of pragmatism. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I would sit myself and say, you, you know, you, you want a bit of both. And so I, I would... I oh, would, you're I so reasonable today, aren't I, you? I wouldn't nail myself. not always myself. like this, I should stress. <laughs> <laughs> How can we recover? Can Britain recover from oh, this? Oh, of course it will recover. I... I a great recession. Of course, well, we will muddle through. I mean, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, you know, so take that with a pinch of salt if you like, because I am, I basically look at things optimistically, you know. Well, I, well, we'll muddle through because we're fine. Anyone who's middle class will, you know, have to tighten their belt a little bit. If you're poor, then you're in for a truly terrible couple of years. You know, you won't be able to afford to pay your bills. You'll lose your house. You'll have to cut things from your life that make your life worth living. So we'll be all right. And maybe in general, yes, there's a, a far side of this, this disaster. But that, the space in between is filled with horror for many people. OK, you know what? That's a completely good counterattack. It's ha- how long a time frame you're using. If you're thinking about in 2010, 20, 30, 40 years, of course we will get through this, I believe. I think if you look back at economic history, things have got so much better. The world is so much better. So certainly in the rich world, for so, well, all over the world, you know, things have got so much better. But when you zone in on individuals, of course we're in for some pain. And... Could this have been avoided if the government had taken different action? Most of it, no. High interest rates are coming, whatever the government did. Maybe they're a bit higher, but, you know, if you look at many other countries, interest rates are going up. That's going to affect people's mortgages. Inflation is is a worldwide problem. I mean, Brexit probably didn't help. We had the 2007 financial crash, which we're still paying for. You have a pandemic, you have a war in Europe, and then we added Brexit on top of that. You know, we're in for some pain. Tony's really longs for a Labour government. You know, in many ways, I think the Labour government is very lucky they're not in power now, because I'm sure they would have made a better job job of it than this latest budget, but it was not going to be... There's no escaping from some of what's happening, I think. But, of course, what what happens next is hopefully there will be a Labour government and what they inherit is this unholy mess. But they can credibly claim it's an unholy mess not of their making. So they will at least have that politically behind. You know, they can, you know, blame the others. Yeah, sure, and perhaps the graph by then will be beginning to tick up. Who knows? Before we go, I just want to revisit Monty and and the Hampstead landscape because it is also a lovely love letter, actually, to both Mm. the dog, to each other and to the area. And I just just wanted you to to talk us through that aspect of it, Tony. Yeah, well, I suppose that a huge part of our lives when the children were smaller was walking up to... um, through the little side streets of, of Hampstead and West Hampstead to, uh, to Golders Hill Park, which I'm sure is a park you know as well. And it's just a kind of golden period in, in our lives. You know, it's, that part of the heath is, is genuinely beautiful. The whole heath is beautiful. And that bit of Hampstead we'd always... Yeah. I, you know, I still walk up... What's that What's that beautiful street just before we get to the Hampstead High Street that we used to walk Church up? Row. Church, Church Row. Church yeah. Row. I mean, walking up Church Row, mm. I'm still so sad that I don't do that every day. But I suppose also thinking about a, a dog, because I was never a dog person growing up. I would never have chosen to have, have Monty, much though we love him now. Although you but, did, in fact, choose to have him. It was you that made the it, choice. Well, I, I, <laughs> I gave in to pressure from our terrifying daughter. The beauty of a dog is it gives a point to every walk. I think, you know, without a dog, you kind of wander around wondering, what, why am I doing this? But when there's a dog there, it's got a purpose, and that's a little bit of grit around which the, the pearl of the walk forms. So, yeah, dogs do genuinely, it turns out, enhance your life. <laughs> Absolutely, and they certainly enhance your story. <laughs> 
wouldn't, wouldn't be a book without Monty, yeah. that's true. I mean, it's an absolutely great way to get into to the nuts and bolts of economics by using sausages, which you, <laughs> <laughs> you trick him with quite often. I think he was quite unhappy with the fact that a lot of those sausages were, in fact, metaphorical. Yeah, he's a greedy dog. <laughs> How to Teach Economics to Your Dog, a quirky introduction, is published by One World, and it's written by Dr Rebecca Campbell and Anthony McGowan. Thank you both so much for coming in. It was a real pleasure. A Thank pleasure. you. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks also to the producer Nora Hull and researcher Emily Sands. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>